We were in Galatians. We're getting, we're here. Galatians week 11. We're in Galatians chapter 4 this morning. Galatians chapter 4. And I'm excited about where we are heading in the book of Galatians. Man, it's a good book, but chapter 5 is like gold. It's golden. And I'm looking forward to getting there. But we are finishing out chapter 4 today. If you have your Bibles turned there, title of today's sermon is Paul's Got Questions. All right? Paul's got, excuse me, well, questions. Paul's got questions. Paul comes, if you remember, in the last two weeks, he comes off this incredible truth of sonship and adoption. We've spoken about those for two straight Sundays, the close of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. He speaks of sonship, adoption into the family of God, that we are joint heirs with Christ. And then he transitions into our text for today. If you have a Bible that, depending on what type of study Bible you have or what you look at, uh, if you notice, sometimes there are uh, titles to like the section of Scripture. And so if you see this title in chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, in, in my Bible, the title says, Fears for the Church. Anybody else just say that? Fears for the Church? A couple of you? All right, cool, I don't know. Um, fears for the church. And so he goes in from like, I want to tell you about your standing in Christ. I want to tell you all that Jesus means and what he does for you and how what he's done for you in, in light of the gospel. But I've got some fears now. I've got some questions that I need addressed. I need to speak to you in that way. And so Paul shifts his tone a little bit and he asks these Galatian believers some questions. And may I pause there and may we remember that this book is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we remember that it was written to believers. May I remind you, as I did at the beginning of our study, that the gospel is not for the unsaved. It is for the unsaved and the saved. We should continue to remind ourselves of, grow deeper in our understanding of, and our, our, our knowledge of the gospel. So I want us to see, we're not going to read our text today because it's long. We're going to read our text as we go through our points today. So we're actually going to finish chapter 4 today. Paul has three questions. And he actually asked a couple more um, in this text today. But I'm going to focus in on three questions that Paul asks these Galatian believers. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. The first question is, why do you desire bondage? Why do you desire bondage? Look at verse 8. We're going to read it in the version that I usually read it in, which is the New King James Version. You can have whatever version you have at your seat, no problem. But it says this, but then indeed when you did not know God, you served those by which, by which, sorry, those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. We're not really going to hit that truth, but that is actually an interesting verse 12 there. I don't know about you, I read that and I can gather some understanding, but what I often do in my personal Bible study, and I was taught this by um, a, a faithful 
uh, teacher at my church in Maryland, um, one of the teachers there, and so, you know, I, he had he had five trusted Bible versions that he would often refer to, right, for clarity's sake. And so um, I, I've adopted that somewhat from him. And some of those are like word for word, like the NASB and ASB is like a very word for word. It's probably the most word for word translation that there is. There are others that are more dynamic, which is more like the NLT. And so the NLT is what I've read my Bible in last year. And so I went there and I went there and this, it helped bring clarity so much that I want to bring that to you today. Okay. So we just read it. And what I would typically do, we're going to do this with all three of our points today. So we're going to look back at Galatians chapter four, back at verse eight. I want to read it to you in the NLT. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? And that's a great question. You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you, Paul says. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. I think it helps us a little bit in the clarity of what he's trying to say and what he's, the point that he's trying to get across. And Paul was amazed at the beautiful truth of the gospel that had been given to these people, and they had seemed to choose to live a life of bondage to the law and of bondage to sin. If you remember the story, this is Paul writing to the Galatian churches. And you remember this, this tour that Paul went on, this journey, missionary journey that Paul went on was this first missionary journey when he went into Galatia and he went to these cities and he went to a city like Iconium and they stoned him, a city like Lystra and they left him for dead, okay, but he preached the gospel to them and he brought the truth to them and in so much that he not only did that but he was willing to go up to Derby and make a U-turn and come back to the cities where he was left for dead, come back to the city where he was stoned. And even in Antioch, where they had an uprising, they didn't physically abuse him there, but they had an uprising against him, he went back to strengthen the believers. This is Paul, who's now writing a letter to them saying, I gave you the truth of the gospel. I brought to you the truth that Jesus saves, that he saves Jews, that he saves Gentiles, that he saves those who call upon his name. It doesn't matter their ethnicity. It doesn't matter their financial standing. It doesn't matter uh, what, what the, their, their past has been, that Jesus can save anybody. I brought you that truth, but it seems like you have now <coughs> reverted back to living in chains, to living under the grip of the law. After hearing the truth of the gospel, it seems that they were trying their hardest to earn, fa earn the favor of God 
by continuing to observe the details of the law. And may I remind you this morning, what does the law do? Do you remember that from about three or four weeks ago? What does the law do? It shows us that we are guilty and that we cannot measure up. And Paul says, why are you actively choosing to live a life of guilt and a life of never being able to measure up? Why are you choosing to live in such a way that the truth of the gospel that I preached to you just a few months before is really eradicated from your life? In the gospel, we have been given freedom from the law. We have been given freedom from the power of sin. But if I may say this, many of us still live in the chains and bondage of our past as if Jesus and his gospel were not enough to cover our past and all its failures. It's as if we choose to live under the bondage of the law and of sin, even though Jesus has freed us from that. And he says, why do you desire to live in that bondage? And I ask us the same question this morning. Listen, there are some church traditions and Christian traditions that are really good. And there's nothing wrong with church tradition and Christian tradition. Uh, I think of one of them. We just went through the Easter, um, went through Easter, uh, leading up to Easter. You have Lent, okay? Lent. I used to think that was something I found in my belly button, right? Uh, you too, don't lie. Because um, I was raised Baptist, and like, what is Lent? Like, I had no idea, like, really, what Lent was. Lent's kind of a, somewhat of a, a Catholicized, um, you know, slant, and I didn't know what it was. And the more I've looked at it, it's a good thing. It's not bad. It's a great thing. It's tr- Christian, Christian tradition. But that would be an idea of something where a church says, hey, listen, this is now a requirement of what we will do because we are Christians or to earn favor with God and earn our standing with God. We will observe this. No, no that's a great Christian tradition. There's nothing wrong with it. And if you, if you want to observe that, have at it. But I'm not gonna, we're not going to live in bondage to Lent. We're not going to live in bondage to those things because we believe that the gospel is simply this, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means for you in your life. Okay, those Christian traditions are great. Listen, another one around Easter is like a Good Friday observance, right? I think those are awesome. In fact, we had a church reach out to us this year, ask us if we wanted to join in and do like a combined Good Friday service. We weren't able to make it happen because of time restraints this year. But that's something we're even looking into next year is the possibility of a few churches in our area coming together and observing Good Friday together. I love that. But I'm not going to let that tradition bind me. Bind me. And may I say this morning, you have been freed from the chains of the law and of sin. And why would you, as a free man or a free woman, Willingly walk back in and put those chains back on. It would be as if, and unfortunately this happens in our society because we're not perfect. It would be as if you were wrongfully imprisoned. We all have heard these stories, right? Wrongfully imprisoned, in prison for X amount of years. Maybe technology gets better. I don't know, I watch some of those Netflix docs. It's like, we didn't know to look under the bed back in the 70s. Maybe you should have looked under the bed. Um, but uh, 
<clears throat> but they find more information, right? And they come to find out that this person is exonerated, right? However they come to that conclusion. And it would be like that person in prison for maybe 15, 20 years. New evidence comes out that they are not guilty. They are released. The warden says, you're done. You're free to go. The judge has given you permission. You can go free. <clears throat> and it's like walking out of that door, walking into freedom, taking 10 steps into freedom. And like my man from Shawshank Redemption, you just can't handle the outside world. You just can't handle it. And coming back, I can't handle this freedom. And so it's like, hey, warden, I know I'm free. I know I can go. But, I mean, can you go ahead and put them back on me? And can you place me back in that cell? And can, you, can you give me that cold food again? Can I hear the screams of people that are having breakdowns and in the middle of the night? Can I hear the gunshots if I'm not really sure what that was and who that was? Or can I, can I go back into this place of captivity? And no, none of us would do that in our right minds. None of us would choose that. And so the question Paul asked and the question that I ask you today was why do we desire that? Why do we desire to live in captivity? Why do we desire to live under the bondage of the law? And I got to be honest with you, this is not in my notes. Maybe some of us are just wired in a way that it's like, just tell me what to do and what not to do. And I'll put that on my list and I'll do what you say. Like, just tell me what to do. Right? And like, it's almost like easier for some people. But that's not the Christian life. Christian life is a relationship. It's, a, it's an organic, living relationship with Jesus. So that's the first question. Why do we desire to live under that oppression? The second question this morning, and I think it's interesting in the text. The second question this morning that Paul asks in our text is, am I your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. Whoa. We're about to get there. Have I become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? And so Paul says, hey, listen, you got this all wrong. You've been given freedom through the gospel. Jesus Christ has made his grace available to you. You've received his grace, and yet you're still living like you're unsaved. You're still living under the law. You're still living under the, the bondage of the law. And he follows it up in verse 12. Look at Galatians chapter 4. I'll read it. <clears throat> As I said in one version, and I'll read the other one just for contrast this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verse 12, you have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. You treated me like you would if, if Jesus was there. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. This is where, by the way, when Paul mentions his thorn in the flesh, a lot of people think it was his eyesight. He mentions here, you would have given me your own eyes, okay? He also mentions at the close of a couple of his letters that he was writing like large letters. And some people thought it was like the length of the letter. Other people think it was actually his handwriting so that he could see. So that's just a, a thought about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Not saying that it's gospel truth, but it's the possibility, right? And that's where part of it comes from, is this text. And then he asked him this question in verse 16. Now listen, you treated me like Christ. 
I feel like you would have literally given your eyes to me. But look at verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And I don't want us to miss this next word. They. They. Now, I don't know about you. My wife knows where I'm probably going with this. We were early married. She was expecting Kelsey. And we were trying to figure it out. You know, the first time, trying to figure out, like, how are we going to be is, like, you know, she's expecting, how are we going to handle this? How are we going to handle being first-time parents and all this stuff? And she would always come to me and say, well, they say that we should fill in the blank, or they say that we shouldn't fill in the blank. And you guys can imagine what my answer, my response to every time that happened was, who are they? Because, like, if you follow who they might be, and you really trace what their value system is and what they are about, you know, trace the money. Um, you might think, think that they are just trying to sell you a nice product at the end of the day. When you, when you scroll down to the bottom of that article, there's a link. Who are they, okay? They. Ha have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. Not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I would like to present you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. They. Let's read it in LT. See if it helps clarify. Okay, let's just see. Look at verse 12. You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I am sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I am telling you the truth? Those false teachers, they, are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They are trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right, but let them do all, let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish, I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone, but at this distance, I don't know how else to help you. Can you feel the, the pain and the hurt in Paul's voice? You have to understand, Paul literally risked his life. Now, I don't know what the beatings in Iconium and Lystra looked like, the stones that were thrown at him. In one of them, he was left for dead, meaning they literally thought they had killed him. And they walked away, leaving him as if he were dead. This is what Paul went through to get the gospel to these people in Galatia. 
And now Paul says, you are listening to other people, and it hurts me. And am I becoming your enemy? Because I am now telling you the truth. I am now, if you want to say it in our vernacular, I'm now calling you out on allowing yourselves to be influenced by false teachers, by others, by them. And Paul says, I'm the one who brought the gospel to you. I'm the one who nearly died to bring the gospel to you. And it seems like I'm becoming your enemy because I'm telling you the truth. I'm going to make a couple statements here that I want us to grasp and understand. When we begin to ignore the grace of the gospel, when we begin to move away from that in our lives, we often develop a negative spirit toward those who have told us and are telling us the truth. Let me say that again. When we begin to ignore the grace of the gospel or when we begin to kind of live as if that is not real in our lives, we will often develop a negative spirit toward those who have told us and are telling us the truth. The truth that used to set us free now changes us into a defensive, a passive-aggressive, reactionary person. And we do that on the clear, obvious truths that are given to us. Clear teachings from Scripture. Wisdom from Proverbs. And our spirit changes. And Paul mentions even, you guys receive me well throughout Galatia. Even in those cities where I was physically beaten and I was, and I was mutilated and my body was left for dead, you received me. You would have gone out of your way. I feel like you literally would have taken from your own bodies to give to my body. But now your position seems to be and your spirit seems to be radically changed. Someone began to win their hearts. Someone began to push that lie back into their lives. Someone began the questioning of the truth of the gospel and the grace of Jesus in their lives. And in the New King James, it says they. In the NLT, it, it says false teachers. Whoever those people were, they had bad intentions, it was told. They wanted to win them over to their favor. Someone, there was someone or there was a group of people that began to influence the spirit of the Galatians. May I just very, very carefully, lovingly, but directly say, if your attitude has changed toward the truth or to those who faithfully proclaim the truth, pastors, elders, teachers, leaders, spiritual leaders, then a question you may need to ask yourself is, who began to influence my spirit? Who? Who began to influence my spirit? May I say this as a pastor? 
If I no longer view the truth and the beauty of the gospel and the grace of God in my life the way that I ought to, and I begin to, to internally reject and rebel against that, I need to look in the mirror and say, who have I allowed to influence my spirit? As a pastor, if I may be very honest with you, I will notice people who used to be lockstep, in stride, I'm all in, I love Jesus, the gospel is real in my life, and over time, it begins to change. And over time, the positivity turns into negativity. And over time, the encouragement turns into discouragement. And let's just call it what it is. Oftentimes it turns into, you know, talking to people about it that can't do anything, which I call gossip, right? If you're talking to someone about someone, something that cannot do anything about it, probably shouldn't do it. And I asked that person, and I would ask myself if I found myself in that situation, did the truth change? Did the person presenting the truth change? Then who influenced you. And Paul asked this question, have I now become your enemy because I am still telling you the truth? We're all, most, many of us are adults in this room. We've all dealt, whether you have your own children or you've been around kids, sometimes you have to be you have to bring the truth. You can bring it in love, but it's still the truth. And sometimes the truth hurts, right? Sometimes the truth is not easy, not only to say, but to receive, right? If we've all been there. And I don't know about you, but I've been around young people enough to know that sometimes, as lovingly as can be, the truth is given. And their spirit begins to not only reject the truth, but then to rebel against the one that's sharing that truth with them. And if we're not careful, and I'm saying myself, I can get that way very quickly. I have pastors, my wife knows I have pastor friends that hold me accountable on things from Bible reading to faithfulness to scripture to my relationship with my wife and kids. And if, and there's been a few times in my life where they have legitimately said, hey, you need to check this or you need to work through this or I'm noticing this. And if my spirit towards them is one of pushback and passive-aggressive negativity, there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And my question to myself would be, who did I allow to influence me? Because here with the, with the Galatians, it was they. It was false teachers who came in and said, hey, Paul spoke of that gospel, uh, that good news for Jews and, and Gentiles. And no, no, don't listen to that. Continue to observe the days and the feasts and the months and all of those things that will earn you favor with God one day. And cross your fingers, hopefully you do it enough to where he accepts you. And that, that must be rejected. And so the questions this morning that Paul asked in this text, and like I said, there were a couple more, 
But the question is, we're going to ask, why do you desire bondage, number one? Am I your enemy because I tell you the truth? And then lastly and thirdly this morning, what does the scripture say? Man, I love that. That's a great question. That's a great question for like, for anything in life. That actually should be question number one. What does the scripture say? By the way, we are a church that believes in the authority of this book. If the Bible teaches it, then we stand on it, no matter if it's uncomfortable or not. No matter if it's culturally relevant or seemingly culturally irrelevant. We stand on the truth of God's word. And so, what does scripture say? For time's sake this morning, I'm going to go straight to the NLT text back there. Go straight to the NLT text, Galatians chapter 4, uh, looking at verse number 21. Galatians 4 and verse 21. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? That's a great question. I was going to use that one as one of my points. Do you even know what you believe? The scriptures say that Abraham had two sons. One from his slave wife, by the way, Hagar, and one from his freeborn wife, Sarah. The son of the slave wife, Ishmael, by the way, was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife, Isaac, was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai where people received the law that enslaved them. She was a picture of the law. The law brings death and the law brings guilt and the law lets you know that you can't measure up. Now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman, and she is our mother. As Isaiah said, rejoice, O childless woman, uh, you who have never given birth, break into a joyful shout. You who have never been in labor for the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law, just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. Verse 30, you with it? But what do the scriptures say about that? It's kind of harsh, man, even for the NLT. The NLT sometimes is not as harsh. It ain't King James, you know? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So, dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. Do you remember the story back in the Old Testament? Abraham and Sarah. Abraham receives a promise from God that his seed will multiply and will be all over the earth. You can't even count them as the grain of sand will be, the, will be his children and his children's children and his seed. There's only one problem. His wife is, what, 90? And has never had children. And I don't know about you, if God had promised me that my seed would multiply and my wife was 90, me and God would have some 
you know, some conversations. How's this going to happen? Can I get a little bit of intel? Even back in the Old Testament, man, that's, that's pretty wild. And so in human effort, oh, by the way, when Sarah was told, I'm sorry, we'll get there. In human effort, Sarah and Abraham come together and say, listen, we are going to allow you, Abraham, to step out of our marriage and Hagar, one of the servant girls, and you will have, you can have a child with Hagar so that God's promise can be fulfilled. Listen to that. It sounds weird, doesn't it? Hey, God promised this, but evidently he doesn't know what he's doing. So we are going to finagle the situation to see if we can make it happen. And so Hagar has a son. His name is Ishmael. It wasn't long after that that God comes to Abraham and Sarah and says, hey, Sarah's going to be with child. And what does Sarah do? She starts laughing. My wife has a great laugh, by the way. I'm not sure if Sarah's in the Bible is as good, but uh, my wife has a great laugh. But Sarah laughs, and Abraham laughs. But God gives them a son. His name is Isaac, and through Isaac, Abraham's seed would be blessed forever. Through the line of Isaac, God's blessing and his promise would be fulfilled in through the line of Ishmael, the rejection of God and his promise would be experienced. Doesn't mean that every single person that was born from the line of Ishmael could never believe in God or believe the gospel. We obviously know that. But even still to this day, if you trace those lines and that lineage, there is still today physical con conflict between the line of Isaac and the line of Ishmael, even today. But this is another way of Paul illustrating that doing it your own way, trying to, trying to make God's promises fulfilled in your flesh, in the law, in sin, right, uh, with with Hagar and with Ishmael, that living in the bondage of that must be rejected and the freedom of the promises of God given to Abraham through Isaac and through Sarah must be accepted. This was a, just an illustration that Paul was giving to further drive home the first question that we spoke of. The law must be rejected and the gospel must be embraced. Doing it your own way and working everything out as good as you can do it must be rejected and God's way must be accepted. That's exactly what it's saying here. He is saying Abraham and Hagar attempted on their own power and on their own merits to see something come to pass. God and his sovereignty and his power made it happen in an impossible circumstance. We are to accept this, and we are to reject that. Questions. Questions. What does the scripture say? And may I answer 
that question for what the scripture said. Get rid of the slave and her son or forsake them or reject them. For the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. Here's what it is. If you want to live according to the law and that's what you want to do, you will not receive the inheritance of a believer. If you think this Christian life is up to you and you're going to live this life and you're going to earn favor with God on your own, you will not experience the inheritance that God has promised. You must accept that free woman, Sarah, and that free son, Isaac, for that is God's provision. Hagar, Ishmael, man's provision. So I want to give you three things in conclusion today. From this text, and honestly, this was a little bit more of a teaching text today, but it's okay. Teaching texts are good. I'd rather you know the Bible than not know the Bible. Conclusion number one. Those who have experienced the gospel should no longer live under the bondage of the law. Okay, that's what we learned. If you've experienced the grace of Jesus in his gospel, you should not walk back to that prison, put your hands together, and say, would you put me back in cuffs? But that's what we do when we say, Jesus, your grace is enough. Come on, church. Your grace is enough. But it's really not in the way I live. You like that? Whenever Melissa, anyway. I should sing the whole song. <clears throat> but we sing your grace is enough. And we're like, man, it's all about God's grace. And we're like, yeah, it is. It is. But we live under the bondage of the rules and the regulations of the law. And if we don't observe this, God's going to hate us. And if I don't do that, God's going to hate me. And if I do this, God's going to love me more. And if I do, God will never love you any more than he does right now. He will never love you any less than he does right now. And may I just say this, God loves you the same before you came to faith in Christ as he does the day you leave this world and you're with him in glory one day. He loves you no matter what. If you've experienced the gospel, you should no longer live under the bondage of the law. And following up on that, secondly, not only should we not live under it, but here's a better way of putting it. The law must be rejected and the gospel must be embraced. Now, that does not mean doing right and living biblically should be rejected. Don't get me wrong. It means the spirit in which we do those things to earn God's favor and to earn God's love must be rejected. We must embrace that we do anything we do in our Christian life, not, not so that but because of. Listen to me. Whatever we do in our Christian life is not so that God will love me more, God will accept me, God will give me his favor more. It must be because of. You loved me. You died for me. You gave yourself for me. Because of that, how may I serve you? How may I live? How may I show your love to others? How may I introduce this grace to other people? And then thirdly, 
when our attitude changes towards the truth and those who speak it, we need to honestly examine who we have allowed to influence us. The question Paul asked, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? This isn't just about our church. This is just in general. I mean, I don't know about how many of you. I'm, I came to a point in time in my life a couple years ago where I'm like, I'm just tired of being around any negative people. Like, if you're all negative all the time, like, I don't really want to be around you. I'm a Duke fan. Amen. Um, by the way, Wendy, I love that Duke blue shirt you're wearing. Repping, you know, repping. She's a big Duke fan. Just kidding, she's not. She's probably leaving the church now. I'm sorry, Wendy. Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? I'm just kidding. Um, but <clears throat> I got to be honest, I'm a Duke fan. Okay, and I love Duke sports. I love Duke basketball. I love Duke football. I'm all in. But online, through Twitter and through other uh, message boards and things like that, uh, Duke fans have kind of a, there's like an internal thing. Like, there's a whole pocket of Duke fans, like, that are extremely cynical and extremely negative about anything and everything that's going on with anything Duke sports. To the extent that, like, we're, we're tight with the head coach, football coach, we've had conversations about, like, we have to fight against that part of our fan base. It's kind of weird. But, like, the cynicism of, around that, we have to fight against it. Honestly, I had to come to, even in something as stupid as, like, my interactions with other fans of my own team, I'm like, if you're going to be negative all the time, I don't really want to hear it. Like, I'm going to block you, or I'm going to unfollow you, or I'm going to, like, remove myself from this message board, or I'm going to listen to a different podcast or whatever. Like, I'm not, I didn't want negativity around me. I came to that conclusion in any part of my life. I use that as an illustration. Listen, I, I'm, I'm, I, I try to be, and I don't, I'm not always good at this, but I try, to, I try my best to see the good and see the positive. Jeff has worked, we've worked together now for six years, really, because in June we moved here. <laughs> so really it's been full six years. I think Jeff has probably seen in my leadership times where I did not see the positive, but how I'm like trying to see the positive more. I'm trying. I'm trying. And I say this, when you go from seeing the positive to always seeing the negative, I ask you the question, who influenced your spirit? I walked in here today to the same church that I walked into October the 1st of 2017. Is it different now? Absolutely. Absolutely. Very few remaining, right, John? The OGs, right? Um, very few. A lot of differences, a lot of changes. I have to ask myself this. If I am more negative about my spirit towards our church now than I used to be, you don't have to ask myself, who did I allow to influence me? Who? So I ask you, I ask you that question in any part of your life. I do that because I'm the pastor of the church. I ask you that about your marriage. I ask you that about your job. I ask you that about anything in your life. Who influenced you? I want, God knows my heart this morning. I want people to be able to speak the truth into my life. 
and I want to receive it with grace and with mercy. And as long as God allows me to lead this church, I want to be able to speak truth into your life. And I pray that you can receive it with grace and mercy, right? And whenever I can no longer receive the truth of grace and mercy, or you can no longer receive the truth of grace and mercy, we need to come together and our hearts need to get realigned with the Spirit. And our spirit needs to get realigned with the Spirit. Heavenly Father, I love you today. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at keystonerdu.church. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media and outreach ministries at Keystone, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Durham and around the world.